This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. Join me as we sit down with Claire Chu and Leila Mustafa to discuss the preservation of refugee cultural heritage. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in the studio, I have some special guests. Um, One is Clara Chu from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, our uh, sister school down there. Um, Welcome. Tell us about your position. I'm the director of the Mortensen Center for uh, International Library Programs and also Mortensen Distinguished Professor. And I've been there for just over a year and a half. Okay, and we're going to hear more about your uh, your work. And uh, uh, and Leila Mustafa, Leila, do you want to introduce your uh, your position? Thank you very much for hosting us. Um, I'm the Middle East and North Africa librarian in uh, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and I'm an assistant professor, and I'm here to talk to you. Yeah, and I think uh, I think for our audience, when we we've when we think about uh, the the library, we think of it maybe as this static place and well, I'm a historian so I'm in love with the library of course mm-hmm. it's uh it's where I feel at home and um but uh, you two in particular are doing some really novel things with thinking about your both your collection and your and your and your and your audience and so um maybe Clara do you want to start us off and tell us about um how you're approaching uh refugee and refugee issues uh as far as the library is concerned Yes. So with colleagues of mine, then I've been working on various projects. The one that uh, I came to speak at Northern Illinois University with the Center for Southeast Asian Studies uh, focused on uh, the information needs of Southeast Asian undergraduates. Uh, So refugee undergraduates were interested in learning how it is that uh, they thought about and any challenges uh, to uh, start their undergraduate degree and then also what their information needs and experiences are and what it is that leads to their success or any challenges that they're facing and then also uh, after the fact what are their plans and concerns and information needs uh, post-graduation. And related to that, then uh, having worked at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, where there are uh, large numbers of refugees being resettled, then uh, we were also with other colleagues interested in looking at how you preserve uh, refugee cultural heritage. So with a group of colleagues, then we have been working on agency in the preservation of refugee cultural heritage, and we were specifically looking at the Montagnards and how the uh, Montagnards could tell us about how they would like to share their culture, how they would like to see it preserved, and we invited young Montagnards to interview them and to ask them to learn more about their cultural heritage. And so those are kind of two main projects that... um, are related to research that I've been working on. And then a third one is one that uh, is called Project Welcome. And in this one, we're looking at refugees and their and asylum seekers and their 
information needs and how libraries can address them in partnership with the American Library Association and with funding from the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Then we wanted to uh, learn what the needs are, how libraries can best serve them in order to come up with recommendations and an action plan that libraries uh, across the United States could use. Thanks. Uh, we'll talk more about it. There's a lot to un unpack there. Um, so, Layla, yours is, is not unrelated, but uh, has its own focus. What, Where do you see your job uh, in the um, University of Illinois there? Okay. <clears throat> Actually, I started uh, as a human rights activist before I am, uh, became a librarian. And when I started as a librarian, um, I find out that most of my job required to collect materials for scholars who are studying the Middle East and North Africa. And because of the war going on in the Middle East um, for a long time now, for three decades actually, I find it's very hard to get the materials, but also I start finding that the scholars who are have to travel to the Middle East are also lacking access to these materials because sometimes they cannot travel or if they travel they cannot find the materials because there is damage to the library or the archives so i start writing about this and i find or maybe a travel ban or a travel ban <laughs> <laughs> travel ban and also there's actually uh, some foundation they will say okay we'll fund your research if you are going to out of 22 countries in the Middle East, you will fund three countries only. Oh, wow. So I find some uh, PhD student has to change their field work from going to, for right. example, Egypt to go to Morocco. Uh, because yeah, and, and, and you know, the historian of me says like these, these boundaries are very new. And so like, you know, these are, they're fairly, they're arbitrarily drawn now that, um, that would limit someone who's maybe studying the Ottoman Empire, yeah. for example, like, you know, most of the Ottoman Empire is excluded um, randomly by this ban. And, uh, but then I was like, but war is have been going for since human are exist in this uh, land. So w it must be someone is really trying to save this cultural heritage in time of foreign conflict. So I went back and I read the literature and I didn't find anyone really working on this topic. And then I went to see what happened during World War II because the American had a very interesting move in going to Europe and saving the cultural heritage in Europe. And I was interested in also how all these books that survived World War II was moved from Europe because I was like, if I find out how people had been able to move these books, not just saving human lives, maybe with these small tricks, we can learn and save other uh, collection in in war zone so I'm writing about this and I'm getting a lot of interest from like uh, conference and and journal want to publish for me because it's a very because war is not only in the Middle East and everyone was talking about uh, natural disaster but now war are also uh, destroying our cultural heritage and I believe the Middle East heritage is not belong to people over there it's because it's belonged to human because all civilization are coming from there. So I'm finding uh, a lot of support from my university, from the community of librarian and archivist to work on this. And there is more people are really getting to write about this topic. Yeah. So, so interesting things you don't, uh, again, you focus on the human toll, of course, but, but as we know, the, the, the cultural, uh, the cultural heritage is, is, is under siege any time that a that a conflict uh, takes place, and um, I remember seeing the when um, 
ISIS had moved into uh, Mosul. Uh, yeah, Mosul. That you know that just people secreting away uh, books and archives, and that was you know like that people whose lives are in danger, but also they realize how important this is for you know that's like a cradle of civilization over there, and just right. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of these these heroic stories of of um, human concern for their for their culture is that were there was there were there um are you are you looking at kind of in a narrative way or or kind of a uh, a bird's eye view of the attempt to save culture i actually was looking for the border like just and like an idea about how it can be done but then i became very interested in world war ii to find exactly the jewish community in europe how they saved their cultural heritage. And I find right. a very interesting, like you would read a hundred book to find two lines. <laughs> and it was very interesting because I was able to bring to kind life- Kind of the things, they had, the things they had brought with yeah. them or, yeah. I was able to bring to life this heroic people who are never really mentioned in books. It was always, oh, we saved the books from Europe and now it's in in, in the Diavo Institute in yeah. New York. And I was like, I'm interested in the journey of this books, how this books move, who moved it and how it happened. And I'm looking for this more and more because there's a lot of things we still don't know, but the, I just published an article about what happened during World War II and I wrote about two groups in Jewish groups, they saved some books. And also the British Library in England, they were having a, a plan about how to hide the books. There's tunnels under London and they put, <laughs> it's really interesting to see those who are in love with books, how they were able to save it. And sometimes they die after they saved it, so we don't know where they hide it. Right. <laughs> yeah, and so, and, and obviously, uh, Clara, not it's it's connected to your, uh, you know, these maybe some of these conflicts produce the kind of uh, human migrations that uh, that that come and and you know visit these collections on 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 the other side of the world. Like, what what is the are there are there other connections that I'm not seeing? Or this that seems to be like a powerful one, right? So I think that one of the things that happens when one has is forced to migrate is you don't take much with you. And so if you don't take much with you, then what is it that you preserve? And I think it's very important to continue the traditions. And so our concern was, if there are refugees, then how are they doing this? And what of their culture do they continue to practice? And what would they like to see preserved? And so that's the aspect that we're looking at because uh, the cultural groups that we're looking at, they're more oral. They have oral traditions rather than necessarily uh, documentary heritage. Just maybe tell our audience, who, who are the Montagnards, who, for those who might not know? Okay. The Montagnards, it's an ethnic group that uh, are from the mountains of Vietnam, and they helped the Americans during the Vietnam War. So uh, after the war finished, or even uh, before then, um, many of them were concerned for their lives. And the largest group of Montagnards living outside of uh, Vietnam are living in the uh, Greensboro area in North Carolina. Yeah, and I guess you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily associate 
you know North Carolina with, but you had you had said that the Southeast Asians are the are the biggest group of refugees as a, as a population. Is that right? Did I, did I get that right? I yes. Uh, so there are many uh, refugees that have uh, resettled in North Carolina, and the Southeast Asian refugee uh, community is one of the largest. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, you know you have these you have these co- these collections of of uh, groupings of Burmese and Hmong that that uh, happen to associate in in places that you might not normally think. I I always think it's a you know the Southeast Asians who end up in like you know northern Wisconsin like oh it's so cold there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> why not resettle? Why not resettle them to to South Carolina? <laughs> Right. So at least a little warm. I guess North Carolina is pretty yes. good. <laughs> so one of the things that we have learned is that uh, the refugee community itself, uh, they don't really get to choose where they resettle. So then the decisions are made. Uh, and who they're sponsored by. Yeah, the who states, they're sponsored yeah. Right. And so they do end up going, you know, wherever that first place is. And then hopefully they um, like it there. Or if they don't, then they might choose to go somewhere Story about uh, a woman who, uh, who's, who her son came across accidentally, kind of uh, evidence of her being a master weaver, and uh, at the same time she was kind of uh, wasn't as interested in, 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 or maybe it was too painful to to relive that history. Um, can you relate that story and and give us some maybe insight into how um, are there generational forces at work? with parents who, who want their kids not necessarily to be immersed in the culture and language of their past, but want to advance them in the, the new cultural context of, uh, uh, in this case, of the American setting, and, and how those work with your research. Right. So what we find with a lot of immigrant groups is that that's the situation. Oftentimes, to ensure that uh, the next generation is able to succeed in the United States, it's able to integrate very well, then they encourage uh, that generation to learn English, not necessarily to learn the heritage language. But that really varies per families, communities, and so forth. So it's not necessarily the norm, but uh, there tends to be that emphasis. And so when you have situations where people are forced to move elsewhere, then how do you continue that, um, the sense of culture and, and a sense of identity? And I think linking it back to Leila's work, then there's something within uh, tangible cultural heritage that reminds you of yourself, that gives you that sense of where you come from. And so where you come from, then is also where you're going to. Your, your research focuses on the, the the cultural aspect of of the of a collection of of, a, of an archive of a heritage but there's obviously a human um, component as, as well 
do how does how do these people go about um, getting there? Get, once once something is, um, oh, sorry, what I'm trying to say is, I guess I I'm trying to figure out um, how do we get from someone who decides that they're um, they have these things that are worth saving mm-hmm. from whatever mm-hmm. calamity and to to the next step, which might be. Um, um, you know, do we move them out of the, do we, do we export them, secret these things away or do we just hide them until the, you know, the, the, the hurricane blows over and, and resurfacing? I'm just kind of wondering what the, uh, there is something that refugee actually, when they come here, they come with a story. And one of the things that I was advocating for in one of my talk is how to preserve this story, because this story is not just books and it's the human beings who survived survived with the story so what clara was talking about so integrating also, all of those things yeah. that the the person the story their the person heritage. the story the things that they are bringing with them that they that when you are forced to leave there's something always in your pocket that you wanted to bring with you and sometimes it's just the key of your house because hmm. you will keep this key forever I know people, they have it generation after generation, the key, because this is... From where they were pushed out? Yeah. Oh, because wow. this is where which where they are hoping one day they will go back. So it is really all these stories, like people will stay here forever, and they know may, one year they will say, we will go back, next year we will go back, we will stop. But at the end, they end up with these things that they came with. And it has a story of I was one day really prepared to go back and I had my key. Or when I came, I had my clothes and still I have my the dress that I was wearing. All this really culture belonging. And I was advocating for the library should really in order to integrate this community and this refugee to the community is to have like an exhibit where people can bring something that they brought with them. So to show this is something belong from my country or... So what I'm advocating for is not just book and pen and pencil and sorry book and, and right. archives materials. It's also More this human pri- private stories. keepsake yeah. even like this um, human stories is very important because, um, as I said, what happened in World War Two, we were very interested in the story of the war and bringing this refugee from Europe to all countries, but we forget the story of the journey of this suffering of this uh, war and this is what i'm looking for and i hope we learn from this and we can document this story now mm-hmm. so i wanted to just uh, add a quote from uh, one of the leading uh, researchers uh, in chinese diaspora studies and he said that in archives you can find uh, you know history but one of the things you might not find is the passion like what people's spirit is and their sense of survival and their sense of courage. Mm-hmm. And so those personal stories that Leila's talking about are the things that libraries and archives and museums could be doing more of um, because the everyday story of the average person, that is one link to the story of the whole society. What is the current state of of whether it's research support or or funding support for documenting and, and helping understand uh, both the, not only immigrant story, but the immigrant um, 
use of knowledge and and uh, and the the library and of protection of cultural heritage is this is this on the radar for in in a major way for the um, for funding agencies etc. I have to say, and when I started my project, the word cult- saving cultural heritage was always meant museum culture sites. And okay. now it became really more document, manuscript, archives. And there is more interest and interest by international organization and local organization to support this preserving cultural heritage in terms of archives and culture sites. I know, you, I know UNESCO and others have have, yeah. have moved towards saying like not just preserving say like a, a, a temple as though it doesn't exist within the community that surrounds it but to try to to, to weave those together so you so you see that that yeah. movement and I see more also UNESCO became more open to tell the public the story that nobody knows like the UNESCO was I was reading an article about how the businessmen are pushing hard to occupy culture sites in in war zone and not to let the, the UNESCO preserve it. So oh, wow. they start saying, we really cannot push this people back because they have the money and the power. So I think with more people understand how cultural heritage became a business area, the more we can protect it because we don't want really this to turn to be demolish this cultural heritage site or library and then turn it to a hotel. And this is what the article all about this. So I see more awareness and I hope people will be more uh, in the front line defending, preserving cultural heritage in United States or around the countries. So, so Clara, have, have, have recent events, um, they must have heightened the refugee immigrant um, situation. Uh, is this a uh, does this help or hurt what you're trying to do? I think it does both. And my uh, approach is more let's get things done, meaning that yeah. uh, there's a lot of support. Uh, people are, uh, you know, concerned about helping others. And so for those who may not be, then, you know, um, we can only try to encourage them to rethink but uh, there are many people who would like to welcome more refugees that would like to see support for them, that they understand that they're coming from really difficult situations. And who are we to make a judgment on who gets to have you know, a safe place to stay, who gets to have a future, who gets to continue to survive and keep their cultures alive. one comment that related to your research. Um, I was reading uh, a little bit about your profile and that you do history of people whose history may be overlooked. And so one of the things that I have been concerned with because um, I'm of Chinese background but born in Peru, and so hmm. there are many ethnic minorities that uh, whose history is all 
often overlooked. And so it's I've like been a trying to... double marginalized kind of... Uh. Yes. <laughs> so there is uh, there was a Cuban historian, uh, Juan Perez de la Riva, and he wrote about Historia de la Gente Sin Historia, so history of people without a history. So when I read your profile, I go, oh, okay. He's really writing about that history that I'm always uh, referring to. And one example, you were asking about whether there's support to try to document some of these histories. And I would like to see more support for areas that may not be uh, you know, of wide interest, such as the history of ethnic minorities, especially in developing countries. Uh, for example, in Peru, where I was born, Dan, there is this monthly magazine that has been published and uh, since the 1930s. So it really documents the Chinese community in Peru you know, all of these years. And so uh, some of it has been digitized, but it really needs to have the full run of the magazine digitized. And I think that there are s such types of materials. It's just that not everybody's aware of them. My concern is that they're going to be lost sometime and um, it'll be hard to recover them. Mm -hmm. Is it is it, for me, digitization seems like uh, a great thing just in terms of access, just in terms of being able to to um, search, being able to find things that I wouldn't have otherwise are are there I know it's not the silver bullet to to everything, but um, uh, is it is it is it a pretty great way moving forward for for these for these kinds of collections or or and and what are the what are the downsides? What am I not seeing? Mm-hmm. I think I'll just give kind of like a short perspective. I think that in terms of access, it's great. Uh, what I also want to consider are the cultural aspects of it, meaning that if there is a culture that does not wish its materials to be digitized, mm. then is to respect the cultural approach. And so with any of this work, it's wonderful the more that we can provide access to it. But what I would like to see is recognition of how different cultures would like their cultural heritage or tangible heritage or documentary heritage to be handled. So a conversation with them. Um, I agree with Clara, but I also have, I have to say, this is the best we have for now, but it is not the best because it costs money and also access to digitization. We need to secure this access to digitization to be free for all because right. I'm very, very worried about because of the maintenance will cost money and maybe we'll start in 10 years or five years from now, charge people who get access to this. And if we are preserving cultural heritage or people culture, we should really make sure this is So maybe an everyone. unintended consequence of, of people's class and means that they're they're not able to access yeah. um, so that, and, and also the choices about obviously what is collected and what yeah. is, which is, which is not just unique to digitization. It's, you know, why do we keep what we keep is sort of a, a big part of the, yeah. <laughs> the story of civilization um, for sure. Um, so for our listeners, what are some things that you want them to know? Some, some, some projects, uh, institutes, things you're involved in that you want to plug uh, for, our, for our listeners? Okay. 
So for those who are interested in the research on information needs of Southeast Asian refugee undergraduates, then uh, you can look at diversityinfoneeds.wordpress.com. If you're interested uh, uh, in agency in the preservation of refugee cultural heritage, then you can look up DEGA, D-E-G-A dot omika, O-M-E-K-A dot net. And for those of you who are interested in the project on refugees and how libraries can serve them, then it's publish.illinois.edu slash project welcome. And just uh, as a project on how libraries are addressing and advancing peace, then librariesforpeace.org. So those are some of the projects your listeners might be interested in checking out. Uh, For me as a librarian uh, for the Middle East and North Africa, um, if you are interested in any materials for your student in school or if you have a small college and you're having students coming from this region or interested in approaching materials about this region, you should contact me on the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign if you just Google Middle East North Africa and University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, you will find me and my email is l-h-o-u-s-s-e-i at illinois.edu. Thank you. Thank you. And... Crossroads would like to thank Chris Palas for today's music and the GU for production assistance. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.